Leonard Cohen suggested, there is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. This viral crack gives us a chance to create something new and better. So let's talk about back to different and let the light in. I am looking at, it uh, looks like a guitar with a pick stuck between the strings, some shutters, a lamp, a guy with glasses. Yep. And a, yeah, there he is. And it's Ryan Maloney. And picture of, I believe that's you on the wall playing drums. Yeah, I was trying to get a better uh, photo of that so you can see. But yes, that was me when I had much longer hair. Uh, <laughs> I was standing up behind the kit there. Yeah. It was probably at the end of the set or between songs, throwing up the devil horns, you know, to the audience. Anyway, yeah. So a uh, little, little uh, a snap from a few years back. Just a few. Just yep. a few. When, you, when you were younger and maybe wiser. <laughs> Definitely younger. Years, well, one out of two. One out of two ain't bad. So, uh, as as I usually inflict on my podcasters, um, tell us about Ryan. How'd you get here? Who are you? Well, you know, I'll start with the most sort of uh, pertinent pertinent uh, part. You know, related to so why we're we're here and you're in. I'm on this this podcast and everything, which is that I wrote this story about uh, uh, having met this pal and, and after a few years uh, joined his band. Uh, I've been a drummer for 40 some years. Um, and uh, back in 2000, I joined his band and we did this uh, month long run uh, across the States on an annual fest called the OzFest uh, that was headlined by Ozzy Osbourne. But, I'll start because someone uh, last night, we were just out to dinner with somebody and um, they were asking about when I was going to do this podcast. And I said, you know, tomorrow. And uh, the other person said, how did you get into drumming? And what was like, how did you even? And so I'll start there and, you know, I'll make it brief. Uh, I remember we grew up in, I grew up in uh, Cicero, Illinois, and we lived across the street from a neighbor who sublet their basement to this woman and her son and her son was 17 and he was a drummer and he had this incredible double bass kit. And my brother and I were friends with the folks that owned the home and they had kids our age. So we were over there all the time. And uh, the older brother would, I mean, the, the, the downstairs neighbor kid would sometimes let us all down there to watch and practice. And I just remember the very first time my eyes just totally bugged out of my head, seeing this kid just rip it on the drums. You know, I mean, I had never even seen a double bass drum kit before then, much less hear somebody really utilize the second drum, second double kick and just the whole thing. I mean, he, he also looked like a rock star. So that started my obsession with drums and wanting to be a drummer. And then the, it thought that somebody else followed that question up with, you know, what was the music you were into? And, you know, I will say that it was always, you know, some form of rock music. There was always music in our home. Uh, my mom, my mom loved country, country and Western music. So I got kind of exposed to that. My older sister was more into like Rolling Stones and Marshall Tucker, Southern rock bands, uh, Robert Cray, uh, you know, some, some jazz and stuff like that. 
And then my brother and I, who's just a few years older than I, kind of discovered rock on, you know, Cheap Trick and, and ACDC and Journey. And, and I mean, just, you know, Kiss, obviously, we were kind of Kiss freaks. Um, and sort of, I, that was the point. I was drawn to the, <clears throat> to the, to the rock stuff because I saw uh, and heard, you know, the, the audience reaction and that interaction between the performers in that form of music with the audience was far more intense than like, if you happen to see, you know, a country music at Western, or like, you know, people weren't turning off their clothes and people uh-huh. weren't in mosh pits and all that stuff. You weren't doing that to Conway Twitty or Loretta Lynn, you know what I mean? But you were doing that to Kiss and all those other crazy bands. And so anyway, grew up in Chicago, learned how to play drums back then. And then around 1985, moved to Arizona and uh, went to high school, college and uh, jobs and all that. And that's where uh, I actually started in real bands, playing in real clubs uh, around the Phoenix scene. That's that's where I began my recording experience, um, recording in several different professional studios in, in the Phoenix area. Um, uh, and yeah, just along the way, uh, uh, being in different bands um, and trying different styles. Uh, and then, uh, like I said, this, the chance of a lifetime came and my buddy uh, in 2000 said uh, his band was tapped to be part of the second stage lineup on the 2000 run of Ozfest. And they had parted with their drummer and they needed a drummer and asked if I wanted to, to you know, kind of turn my life upside down and uh, join the circus. And uh, uh, so my little story is all about how, like, I considered that and what was going on in my life then. Uh, and But ultimately, I decided to, uh, to do it because I didn't want to regret that. And uh, yeah, so uh, that was way back in 2000. And uh, I have since uh, had a, like a 15 year career in online advertising. And uh, a few years ago, uh, my husband and I moved down to South Florida from Arizona. And we have been here ever since. And now I'm a bartender at a, at a nightclub down on, on the strip there in, in Wilton Manors and loving life. And uh, just got back from the beach a couple hours ago. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the quick and dirty. It sounds, it actually sounds quick and pretty clean. If I'm, if I'm not being disrespectful, because I would have guessed that there are episodes and, and things that happened in that time, which have varying degrees of insanity and chaos. Um, having been yeah. in the music business myself for, I don't know, like 15 years when it was my primary source of income. And then ever since off and on, I mean, no complaints, but there were some stories which were not for polite company. <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a tough slag when you're trying to, when you're trying to, you know, make your mark. And, and uh, you know, I was lucky enough to be uh, joining bands when I was 14 and, and, getting ushered in the clubs that young and being able to play as I was as underage as I was, but I was getting that exposure. And, um, and then I started, you know, uh, it was my first real band was like when I turned 15 or so and the other guys were about 20, 21. And, um, and, uh, that was our, our, our hardcore heavy metal band, yeah. uh, from 1986 to about 1982, um, we played all around the, the Phoenix scene and released a couple of demos. 
And then a, a small label in uh, over in Europe decided to combine them and put out a CD. And we did that in 1989. And um, yeah, we ended up having a, a single on a Metal Blade Records, uh, Metal Massacre series, uh, 11 in 1990. Um, you know, but despite having all those little, those little inch climbs, which makes you feel like, okay, you know, we're doing something a little bit better than we did last year and we're getting a little bit more exposure. It is still so difficult, you know, I mean, to, you know, uh, and yeah, I mean, uh, us like a million other bands, you know, weren't able to be, you know, make it to that next level. But um, yeah, you, you learn a lot along the way. That's for sure. It's a very steep pyramid. You know what I mean? I'm, you know, uh, you get the image. I mean, I started playing in probably 1963. Um, so I'm a child of the 60s and 70s, early 70s. Um, mm-hmm. And it was a very bus- different music business back then. I mean, it was still a business. It was about making money. And and we had the scandals, the, what's it called the payola scandals, where the, the A&R guys from the record companies and, you know, would come around and give all kinds yeah. of things to DJs to get them to play the songs they wanted them to play. Sure. Um, and it was, it, there were, there were just fewer bands. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Like if you even just look at it worldwide back then, you know, maybe a couple thousand bands worldwide and then seventies yeah. add maybe 10,000 to that eighties, 25,000 more. And then the nineties just exploding, you know, uh, you know, and then it's just, which all of that makes it exponentially more difficult for any individual artist at yeah. any level, much less the lowest level to get exposure. And I remember talking with a friend that, uh, you know, late aughts, maybe 2010 or something, uh, you know, just after Facebook launched when that was 2006, you know, and just talking about how like, yeah, well, the internet would be the great equalizer because everyone, most everyone has access to it. So you would think that the best of the best cream of the crop would not would rise naturally, but that actually has not happened. No, Uh, you know, uh, and the business has crumbled, really. I mean, it's, you know, uh, artists have to have, you know, at least what I see, all these like VIP packages, meet and greets, um, and they have to constantly be on tour to to make ends because no one's making any money selling records, that's for sure. No, and and I'm not a, um, I'm not a Luddite, you know, I'm not anti-technology. And in that sense of being a great equalizer, I or you or my young nieces and nephews can download an app on their computer and between sampling and all the stuff you can do, and you don't need to have a lot. I mean, when I recorded, it was a two-inch Ampex tape machine, Mm -hmm. and, and the way we edited it was with tape and a razor blade. Yes. Right? And like, yes. you'd like run it back and forth like that until you found exactly yeah. the spot. And you had to have a lot of experience, a really good ear, um, a whole different background in a whole bunch of different things in order to get into a, a good studio 
and like mix and record. And I mean, I remember going down three stories in a stairwell and splicing microphone cables together again and again and again and again and again. So wow. we this incredibly rich echo in the stairwell. Sure. Right? And and it, it was really exciting and, and it was very hands-on and tactile and and you know um it was, it was a very exciting thing. And I do some recording now, but I miss that sort of frontier aspect. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Sure. Where you're like breaking new ground, trying new things completely, and not relying on a sample. <laughs> or, you know, whatever. I, I, I do. I, I know exactly what you mean. I feel privileged to have had uh, some very limited, uh, but still uh, exposure and experience with being in a studio, recording the two inch uh, tape, uh, that whole thing, the zipping apart with, with razor blades, putting it back together. Um, uh, and yeah, where, you know, you, you had, you had to, you had like, especially drummers, you definitely had to nail the performance. You couldn't really, you can't like edit things together like you can with the Pro Tools today. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, so, but yeah, the talk about back in the day. I mean, I think that went away in the early 90s as far as the last time I had exposure. Yeah. Um, who, who, who are your you know, handful of really iconic drummers, drummers who in the studio live, whatever you're like, that is a drummer. That is a drummer. Yeah. I would say Neil Pert's on the top of that list from rush. Um, I mean, I think every drummer would, you know, would probably reference him, but gosh, there are so, there are so many. And, you know, it's funny as I get older, I, I appreciate certain drummers even more. Like I was just listening, watching it, something on the police and, and, and probably cause it was just Stuart Copeland's birthday, 70th birthday day or two ago, Stuart Copeland. Amazing. And, and like, good gosh, there, a lot of their hits, um, have so have such, uh, um, what unorthodox drumming, but yet they became hits. And despite that, and, and I mean, talk about just genius musicians. Um, I was just watching a thing on uh, Texas Jam in the cars. Uh, I was watching the cars and I don't remember the drummer's name, but man, those guys, the, you, you forget how great they were as a live band because they were playing in front of 100,000 people and those great harmonies are, are coming out because they're all doing it. And that's all natural. They're not, there's no backing nope. tracks. Nope. Um, you know, uh, so yeah, that guy. Good gosh, uh, you know, I, I loved Bunny Carlos from Cheap Trick. Uh, I, you know, I think he was one of the, the 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 people that laid down the blueprint for you know what we refer to as like modern pop rock. Um, you know, I mean, those guys just wrote so many incredible songs. Um, let's see, uh, can't can't leave out. Um, Phil Rudd from ACDC, you know, somebody that sort of lays down the same kind of groove and most of their songs, but there's a reason why, you know, they have sold, you know, a couple hundred million records and, you know, his backbeat is, is definitely a part of it. Um, you know, uh, 
same same thing for like Charlie Watts, you know, and more so for his feel than anything, you know, his his uh, I, I I heard something from Chad Smith from the Red Hot Chili Peppers talking about how like uh, there's some songs where you listen to the Rolling Stones and it's at one BPM in the beginning, and then it's at a much greater BPM at the end, you know, because they weren't necessarily playing to a quick track. And, and it's just about the feel. And at the end of the song, they were feeling it to go a little bit, or he was, to go a little quicker. Um, uh, yeah, uh, gosh. Uh, you know, in the, in the metal age, uh, there's, you know, the guy Dave Lombardo from Slayer. Lars Ulrich from Metallica, I, I, those guys were the sort of the godfathers of, of, you know, what became heavy thrash metal and, and still today are, are out there playing. And uh, even though there's a million other drummers out there yeah, yeah. are technically far advanced and all that. Um, yeah. I don't know. Those, those are the ones that come to mind right off, right off the top of my head. But I don't know if we talked about this last <laughs> time, but a couple of years ago, I went, a friend of mine was playing host to some um, Maasai tribes people who were putting on a show at St. St. John's College here. Now, they, they're incredibly tall. Uh -huh. and from, from standing still, they can jump like three feet in the air. I mean, it's this, it's this remarkable thing. Well, the first thing they did after they all, you know, told a little about, you know, who they were and everything. There's like seven of them on stage, four men and, and three women. And they start doing one of their dances. Well, there are four different tempos simultaneously. And okay. different, they're, they're singing in three different keys. Oh boy. Wow. But purely. So, at first I was sitting there trying to figure it out, you know, cause I, I was, I, I mean, I knew it. I mean, I knew it was right, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but you know, I was like, and then finally I said, stop that. And I just relaxed and just sat back. And you were talking about Stuart Copeland. It was that, it, it was that same, um, that same sense of like a constantly molding, not just the tempo and the cadence and the, but this whole, you know, the whole rhythm pattern. Thing. Yeah. The whole rhythm pattern and yet having it be right. Yes. Yes. Right. And it was right. And, and the, the bands that I've been in, which were my favorite among other things, always had a rhythm section whom owned the song. Sure. sure. I mean, and yeah. Um, you gotta have a great foundation. You gotta have a great. Yeah, you gotta have it. And you, you were talking about speeding up. Um, one of the things I've always hated is drummers who, like, in the first four measures, start speeding up. So that it's like, I can't play that fast. Slow down. On the other hand, if everybody is part of the wagon, and the wagon starts to speed up, that's great. That's okay. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Because, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny going like we were talking about the studio experience, and I used to be one of those drummers uh, that that sped up and stuff until I had, and I was unfortunately that dude until like the mid '90s when I had a, I I was recording with this group, and a, a producer gave me some tough love and said, you know, you're not. There are some drummers who can, you know, record, play live, etc., without a metronome and just stick stick to it. 
but unfortunately you're not one of those guys. So <laughs> you need to learn how to play the click track. And I basically have ever since then, both in the studio and live, because it's, you can't, ex you can't even es escape that adrenaline when you hit the stage, you know, it just, uh, you know, so I always have a, now an earpiece in, uh, not now, but when I was playing last, which was a few years ago. Yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and those people who, who have never been in the business and I mean, no disrespect to anybody, I've never been a doctor, for instance, um, they often don't realize that they, oh, we got a great lead singer, we got a great lead guitar player, got a great keyboard player, but bass and drums don't get no respect. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I mean guys, they, they do from other drummers and other bass players, yeah. but that's about it. You know, we're taken for granted as a whole, but yeah, a lot of people like Dave Grohl says, you know, without a good drummer and a good bass player, your band's going to suck. And, yep. you know, so without people even realizing it. So if the band's good, you know, at least in part, the drummer and the bass player have something to do with it. <laughs> so, <laughs> Looking, looking at the last couple of years, you know, this is the back to different idea. What do you see? And it, it doesn't just have to be about music. It, it can be about anything. But what do you see that that like you can you can clarify as a shift like this is before the pandemic? And this is what I see in here about my neighborhood, my life, myself, music, drumming, anything. What do you see pattern wise? Uh, pattern wise, I think uh, the most I'm seeing is uh, before the pandemic, uh, people took, took it for granted, uh, live music, live music events, um, the importance of those social interactions, but specifically centered around music. Um, related to that, uh, you know, um, pre-pandemic, um, while there was some talk about uh, mental health awareness and all that, I think the two years where people in a lot of places were isolated, um, it wasn't necessarily the case here in South Florida, but I do understand in different parts of the country, different parts of the world, it was much more strict and people were uh, really, um, uh, really held uh, to, to staying in. Um, and I really think it affected a lot of people and it's coming. Uh, and so the, the shift is post pandemic is where people are talking about it now and it's, uh, mm -hmm. you know, the, the stigma uh, uh, about it. Um, about whatever mental illness, mental health uh, challenge somebody might be facing, you know, whatever it is, uh, I think it's always good to to get it out there and and, uh, and talk about it if if, if, if it's the case. Um, but yeah, so I know those are kind of two completely different things, but um, I, I just see that a lot. I mean, it's the last two years, you, you, and you hear, you know, I just I do a lot of following of the music festivals that take place in Europe. A lot of the rock festivals, metal festivals, and and all these interviews with with different headliner bands, and and you know they're just saying what how incredible it is to get back on stage and and not only play music, but you know it's that connection that you make with the audience, you know, and it's a real 
palpable thing. So I, I can only imagine for people who do that, like those headliner acts and other bands that do that literally for a living or mostly for a living, to be cut off from that for two years or more, um, you know, that has to be shocking in more ways than one. Um, and then post pandemic, how incredible and, and perhaps maybe a new appreciation, a new, new, new gratitude for, for having that life uh, and that privilege uh, to be able to play music for people. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, I, again, again, not to sound like, I don't know how this sounds, but I think in general people took, uh, took for granted uh, the, the, uh, how easy it is to, to get sick, um, and, and how devastating it can be. And, uh, so I hope the shift now is that people are trying to pay attention a little bit more and, and, uh, maybe take care of themselves and each other uh, a little bit more. Are you, are you uh, still performing or not? At the, no, I am not. Uh, currently I am not. Um, um, and I'm not sure. Uh, so having since moved to South Florida, uh, I do see that there's lots of opportunity, if not for starting an original project, there are lots and lots of opportunity to, uh, play in, in, in different bars here that have cover bands that play all the time. You know, this is holiday maker central down here. So, and so cover bands do really well. Um, so I, I believe there's opportunity, um, I uh, am just in the process now uh, after a couple of years and post pandemic taking care of some family back in Arizona, all that's over now. So uh, I'm literally just in this year sort of getting back to sort of normal and I do see music in my future, um, but that there's a bunch of logistical stuff that has to, I have to figure out before that. Um, not the least of which is I have to get a new drum kit. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the fun part. Going shopping for drums is uh, like me being, you know, a kid in a candy store. Yeah, so, I, uh, I get it. You know, so I look for, it's all good. You know, I just have to kind of figure out where I'm going to play. I got to get a studio and, and all that kind of stuff. But uh, yes, I do intend on getting back to it soon. Well, a, a good friend of mine named Richard King um, and his website i think is king music anyhow he is um he's like the the drum hardware galactic hero oh okay okay he's um i've been in several bands with him he's also a really good drummer but we'll go we haven't done it in a while obviously but we'll go hear some music and like by the sound he can tell me the vintage of the crash symbol uh -huh. right yeah i mean that's great. what a and, great year that's that's fantastic. and and that's what he does in fact he he sold a lot we were talking about charlie watts he sold a fair amount of stuff to charlie watts so when that's great when you're looking for your new kit I, i'll send you his contact stuff oh fantastic yeah, yeah. rich was rich was a good guy a really good friend and um he's one of those You've you've played with people like this, I suspect, who pretty quickly, when you start playing with them, you're on the same groove like that. Yes, yes, right? absolutely. 
you so, make that connection for sure. Yeah, you make that connection, and and so I would leave leave a space that I that was not planned, and Richard would would do his little right in that right in the space, and he would do the same thing to me and for me, I guess, which is just. I mean, that's part of why I love playing with other people is it's so there's a certain there's a certain special brotherhood, sisterhood when you perform with people. Right. Yes, absolutely. And it doesn't have to even be for other people. It's like what you just said about just kind of jamming with other people, Uh, even if it's just stream of consciousness, you know, I used to do that with with friends. You know, we would get together and, and I would just I'd be hooked up my little retinome, I would, I would just set a BPM and then I just start. And then, you know, they would kind of, you know, come in and then halfway in and I'd, I'd make it double time and then bring it back down to halftime and just to kind of see where it would go, you know, and that's so great. I love, sometimes you get some magic out of those moments and it, it's just priceless, you know, and uh, you know, I, I wish, I wish you could bottle that, that feeling because for other people to sort of know how that kind of feels. And I'm sure other people with other forms of art and how they express it probably feel the same way, um, uh, you know, in their own way. Uh, but uh, like how you describe sometimes playing with people and making, having that connection, it's, yeah, it's really, it's, it's like you're communicating on a, a different level, you, yeah. know, and, you know? Yeah. It's, 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 it's like love. Yeah. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's like love and a spirit for me. And that's the thing when I'm not working with other playing with other people, that's what I miss the most. I mean, I love the music. I, I play pretty much every day. I'm, I'm doing a kind of a duo thing with a guy now who, who he and I are exactly opposite because I live by uh, Billy Holiday's saying, which is I never play the same song twice. whereas my friend andy white and he's a fabulous musician he's he's really a great bass player good guitar player a really good singer he is like if if it ain't what i planned i'm not comfortable playing it going off script going off yeah i mean i'm always after him to to play more leads uh-huh. Or improvise. Yeah, uh-huh. improvise. He's like, <laughs> which is play the part the way it's supposed to be played. That's right. Which is perfect because we get to have that tension between us. Sure, and, sure. And, and like, we're not doing cover stuff. We're doing we're doing Rye Cooter and you know, kind of off the wall stuff like that. So it's it's this cool tension. Let me ask you. Um, how about your personal life during the pandemic? How was, how has that been? How has your, how has your relationships part of your life been? Well, you know, we actually, it has been a bit of an adventure, I will say. Um, so, uh, we moved to South Florida, um, just before the pandemic. So 2019, uh, and, we moved to uh, Wilton Manors, um, which is sort of uh, affectionately known as the second gayest city in America next to Palm Springs. Um, <laughs> and it is such, it was described as such because at the time, I'm not sure it is right now, but at the time it may be, the entire town council was gay. 
Um, it's just a very, uh, there's a very strong uh, business gay presence along the main drive. And anyhow, it's, it's just very gay. We moved to Wilton Manors, bought a condo. Um, and then the, and we, we, were in, we were within walking distance to the drive. Uh, a lot of bars, restaurants, a lot of fun stuff to do. So we would not, almost nightly walk up to the drive, find something to do and have fun. Well, the pandemic hit and everything closed down. So maybe for the first month or so when everybody was on lockdown, uh, you know, we were kind of wondering what to do, you know, and kind of getting sick of being in the house. And I think in the second month, we decided to venture out and we decided to go to the beach. And so we just we found that to be a pretty a good a good option because it was safe and you were away enough from people. Just naturally, people don't get too close to each other on the beach. Um, and also, we discovered a part of the beach where it wouldn't be crowded anyway. After a couple months of doing that, uh, John suggested we maybe try to find a place nearer where we kept going. Um, and I didn't think it was possible, but uh, anyhow, John figured it out financially and we put up our condo for sale. And after a few months, it, thankfully it sold and we purchased where we are now. So, I mean, so which is now we're in this high rise building uh, across the street from, from the beach. Um, it, it, if our life was more walking based over in Wilton Manors, it is even more so now uh, we have, uh, so here's a shift. Uh, our life is a lot more active. We do a lot more walking. Um, uh, now we pretty much walk to everything that like we use our cars very seldom. I use it just to go to work, but um, so we've become a little bit more active going to the beach more. Um, you know, the pandemic in terms of our relationship, we grew closer. You know, we, we heard a lot of people that had had some struggles. Um, but, uh, you know, John and I are a couple that got together later in life. Um, I, and previous to that, both of us were single for many, many years. Um, and when we did get together, we, we took a good while to make sure that it was, it was right. And shortly after that, we went on this European venture adventure for a couple of years <laughs> where we were literally, uh, you know, with each other 24 seven for months and months at a time. And, you know, we came back still loving each other, loving each other even more, wanting to get married. Um, you know, so I think you either go in that direction or you go in the direction of like, oh, you're going to kill each other. And like, you got to get as far away from each other as possible. Thankfully, we went in the, the other direction and, you know, we had you know, we did get married. And so we're good at being uh, in close places together. Yeah. But we can also be independent in our in our home together and kind of like if we can each lose ourselves for hours on a computer doing, you know, researching something or watching videos or doing whatever the heck, um, or in a program. Um, but then there's, you know, uh, either moments in the day or days of the week where, you know, we're just watching TV together and, and that's how it was during the pandemic. So, uh, yeah, it, it was no problem. If anything, it did, uh, it strengthened us. Uh, so it, it was good. Well, Hope and I got married about five or six months before the, the, you know, what hit the fan. Oh boy. And, and, um, after a while in during the pandemic, we decided that before you get married, you should have to spend a year in lockdown together. 
<laughs> I, you know, I, I say absolutely good advice. I, you know, I strongly support that. Now, you're, you're, you're like between Lauderdale and Pompano, sort of? We're in actually Lauderdale. Okay, you're you're in you're in Lauderdale, right in Fort Lauderdale, right there, right. right on the A one A and Oakland Park Boulevard. Well, I used to live in Vera Beach. Okay, my brother lived in what's affectionately known as Fart Piss, or what people call Fort Pierce. Um, <laughs> and my my brother used to live in uh, the Grove in the in the late sixties. Okay. So, yeah, I had, and I've been down to the Keys. I used to go down for February and March. So, um, and I would always, I'd always drive down. So, um, I'm relatively familiar with that, with that part of the country. So, um, two questions. One is now you tend bar now, right? I do. Yes. Um, are you still doing the marketing stuff? No. Uh, so yeah. It, um, I sort of said goodbye to that in around 2017 okay. um, after having gotten laid off the second time from the same company, the, that industry is super volatile. And, and yeah. I had just uh, grown uh, tired of uh, just how volatile it was. Um, at the same time, we thought we, we, as in John and I thought we might give it a go to try to live full time in Spain. Uh, at the time, John co-owned an apartment with two of his sisters there. So we, we had been frequently going back and forth, spending a couple of months at a time. But I have my dual citizenship with dual citizenship with Ireland. Um, and so I can stay there for as long as I want within the Schengen territory. So back in 2018, we thought maybe Spain is where we should be. Why don't we try to give it a go? So we went there. And uh, I found it, uh, I, I very quickly found that I was at a disadvantage because I only knew English. I don't know, sadly, I don't know any other language. And professionally over there, regardless of what industry you're in, you need to know multiple languages. And that's just the fact. So I was lucky enough, though, to get employed. And it was in the hospitality industry. I got in, uh, picked up by this uh, bar this English bar that served mostly English holiday makers and Irish holiday makers. Um, the owner liked me because I was American. And he kind of let me learn on the job, taught me some things. And so oh. I bartended there for the entire like seven month season uh, in Torremolinos, Spain. Um, and then uh, uh, came back um, and, uh, and that's when the whole started in 2019 is when the couple of family members, their health started failing. And we became, John and I became more caregivers to family members uh, over those next two years. So it was just at the start of this year, the top of this year that I uh, went out and got another bartending gig. And, and so I've been doing that for now six months and it's, it's really great. Yeah. I have, some, I don't I miss the corporate world at all. And I don't plan on going back. Of the of the sixty two people now who have done the podcast, I would bet you that twenty five have that same story. I used to be a vice president in charge of sales and marketing at Black Corporation, and I realized that I was dying. You know, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. I just I was done. 
it's it's so it's so crushing it is absolutely it's yeah. yeah at least i found it to be and i remember i actually did get a quote-unquote corporate job um just before we moved uh here and i just i just took it because i needed it it was sort of a low-level job um just before we moved here and thinking oh well okay i'm getting back into work you know after the bartending gig Oh man, but it was the worst thing. And then we moved here to South Florida and once again, looking for a job, looking for a job, found a corporate gig, went and worked, you know, in all these places, put my best foot forward as I always do. Try, try, try. But eventually things turn and, and yeah. you just learn, wow, these guys are just such assholes. They don't give a shit about, oops, they don't give a crap about you. And uh, yeah, anyway, so I, I just finally realized, you know what, this is, this is really unhealthy for me. I know I, I, I can't yeah. do this anymore. Um, it's depressing, you know, all that. Uh, so I haven't enjoyed a job as much as that last bartending gig since, uh, you know, uh, so I'm, I'm sticking with what uh, I'm enjoying now and, and, and just going with it and not really stressing too much. I, I have some I have some friends who have been bartenders for 35, 40, 45 years, and they they love it. Obviously, it's not for everybody. They don't even they don't they don't they don't drink a lot or anything like that, but they just love the excitement and the energy and the stuff, you know, everything that comes with that. So could you would you be comfortable playing in a cover band in a bar or or would you rather you know, playing a band that like push the envelope a little more. Um, boy, that's a tough one. Cause I still, I, I still long for, for, uh, the idea of, uh, creating music that is truly unique, but that is still, uh, reachable, you know, that people could, you know, get it, but that was still something that was unique and, uh, wholly different from anything that's been before. So I, I like I said, I, I still, because I, I do believe that that is the difference maker, like coming up with something that someone hasn't, like you, all the greats, all the great bands right. and the long list of history, they're the greats and they're the ones that are going to, and have gone down in history and will go down in history forever as time goes on because they figured out a unique sound all their own that they don't sound like anybody else. I mean, I believe that is the key. And so anyway, yeah, there's a part of me that still longs for that. There's another part of me that would just love to play in front of an audience. And, and there is a, a huge amount of pleasure playing songs that people know. And, you know, they're stomping their foot, they're shaking their butt, they're getting, they're bobbing their head, they're getting into it because they, you know, you're, 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 you're kicking it just like they, they expect. Yep. And so, you know, boy, both of them have their appeal. I think I probably would lean a little bit more toward the cover band just because I'm addicted to playing before a live audience. I, I love that. Uh, you know, um, I just, I just do. Uh, I, I love seeing people react, you know, uh, to, to whatever I'm a part of. And yeah. So, Thanks, man. Yeah. So, final, final Jeopardy here. Okay. Um, 
And, and I'm going to ask a different question than the question I had baited you with earlier for obvious circumstantial reasons. Oh, yeah. uh, people who both know you well and who only know you superficially, like, you know, you like pass them on the street or, you know, they're, they're like clerks at the store, but you've, you've been in the store enough times that like, they're like, Hey, how are you doing? Is that those two groups, if, if I were a sort of a detective and I got them all together and I said, all right, I want you to tell me how did Ryan handle the time of the pandemic? What would you like them to say? Um, well, the, um, the truth, uh, certainly. Um, and I think uh, for uh, the superficial, I would like to think that uh, they would say, you know, he was thinking about, say, the, the bartenders and maybe tipped a little more. Uh, and the servers and tried to tip them a little bit more, knowing that uh, those frontline service workers, you know, were hit pretty hard. Uh, so, you know, and then related to that, you know, the people that know me even more well, um, I hope that they uh, would also recognize that that's a you know compassionate part of me that I do care about other folks that I did. Uh, you know, hopefully they'll remember that I reached out to the friends uh, that mean the most to me and um, wanted to check in on them, see how they were doing. Uh, so hopefully in both instances, I'm just remembered as uh, a friend and someone who cared. I couldn't have scripted that for you better, nor would I have tried. <laughs> Mac, <laughs> this has been really, really great. I, I really appreciate the opportunity very much. Thank you, Ryan. Um, it's going to be a, a month or so till it's up and running because, you know, I mean, I either get a whole bunch of people who do podcasts or I get a drought. And right now I'm in A. So oh, well, good for you. Awesome. Yeah. No, no complaints here. Keep on playing. Um, keep in touch. Um, one of the things about doing the podcast is I have all these friends who I've never met. That's great. That's great. And I count you as a friend as well. And I appreciate you sharing some of your story with me very much. Take good care. I'm going to go. We're going to have some sushi and pot stickers and coconut shrimp for dinner. So I'm going to go make us some dinner. Yeah. Enjoy your dinner. Have a good one. All right, brother. Later. All right. Good night. Yep. Thanks for giving us a listen. As we move forward with this situation, with this thing that's us, let's never forget that we are all in this together. No matter what else happens, we're all in this together. Thank you.